The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Michael Kessler... Seems like a cool dude. He's the 20-year-old City College of New York baseball player who caught Aaron Judge's 60th home run ball at Yankee Stadium this week and promptly returned it to the slugger. I want to make that perfectly clear, along with pointing out that it was no one's choice but his because fate put him in such a position to make it. Allow me to humbly suggest, though, that this whole business of souvenir baseballs and inequitable bartering combined with increasingly demented public pressure for the little guy to make the financial sacrifice is not a feel-good story. Rather, it's a telling window into how things work and who they work for in the real world. Judge means so much to the organization, especially this year, Kessler told MLB.com. He's just unbelievable. Just the way he is, he deserved to have the ball back. I have no second thoughts. One has no choice but to respect this point of view. Hustling to reunite the orb with its righteous dispatcher is exactly what I'd have done at 20. The opportunity to pose for a few pictures and score some autographs, as Kessler did, would have been enough. But not anymore. Perhaps life has jaded me, or perhaps I now see it for what it is. A place where the money runs uphill and responsibility runs downhill. Where the least secure are asked to value loyalty over the bottom line. Where bizarre, boot-licking weirdos demand that everyone do what's worse for them based on a hypothetical of what they do in a similar situation. Judge's 60th dinger is valuable. It would have commanded a sexy price on the open market. Darren Ravel, a personal favorite of mine, posited the price tag could have six figures. This is a tremendous amount of money for the median fan seated in the left field bleachers. It is also chump change to everyone else associated in this story. Currently on a one-year, $19 million deal, Judge is poised to command, conservatively, $25 million annually for the next half decade. An MVP season where he wins the Triple Crown will assure that. The New York Yankees, the most iconic brand in all of sports, have a valuation north of $7 billion. No one should feel bad about making the uber-rich pay what someone else would pay for a piece of history. Any notion to the contrary is patently absurd. 
No one is saying Judge doesn't deserve the ball. If he wants it, then the Yankees can figure out how to make it happen at auction. They are quite literally more equipped to ensure that happens than any other team in the league. Major League Baseball as a whole has shown a steadfast dedication to grabbing all the money. Umpires are wearing freaking crypto ads on their jerseys, for God's sake. And they'll happily sell you NFTs knowing full well it's a bottomless abyss of ruin. Visit Yankee Stadium and they'll gouge you for a hot dog and a beer. Baseball remains beautiful, but the infrastructure and bottom line of professional sports can obscure that. That's why to me, it's so maddening to see the impetus for doing the right and selfless thing fall to the very people who could actually use a little extra money in their pockets. The Sports Center account sent out the following tweet. The fan who got Aaron Judge's 60th home run ball wanted Judge to have it. A classy gesture. Hand clap emoji. That's how the media packages what went down in the bowels of the stadium. Look, it's not entirely analogous to the countless stories you see about GoFundMe accounts being set up to pay medical bills. But there are already some cropping up trying to get Kessler paid for doing the right thing. Presumably, these donations will be driven by other working class people instead of millionaires and billionaires. None of this, outside of maybe Kessler's cool attitude, should make us feel warm or fuzzy. If Kessler felt that way, who am I to dull those feelings? Well, I guess I'm someone who wants the next person who gets their grubby paws on baseball history to parlay that luck into some life-changing cash. If that next person feels better about doing so, how about bargaining for a significant charitable donation from an uber-rich franchise? The only way this happens is if the conversation changes and the pressure is applied where it rightfully belongs, on the fat cats, not the little guy. It should be seen as terrible public relations for a fan to feel pressured to forfeit six figures, and worse public relations to not make that fan whole in some meaningful, money-based way. It's high time we stop falling for this playbook. My guest today is Jordan Schultz. He's the NFL insider at The Score, also an NBA analyst. Two sports in this economy. How do you do it? Thanks for having me, Kyle. Um, well, obviously, basketball for me is my first love. You know, I played basketball for four years in college, had a pretty decent high school career, and that was really the path I wanted to go. But what happened was, as I got into the industry, I realized pretty quickly that the the NBA space is so well covered and because there aren't that many players, you know, you think 12 guys on a roster, it becomes very crowded, very fast. And so I took that love and I decided, let me pivot toward the NFL where yes, it is very well covered as well, but you got an active 53, you got another 30 guys, you know, getting, trying to get on teams. You have the practice squad. The staffs are much bigger. There's just a lot more opportunities, more agents, more coaches, so I felt like, given the fact that you had that element with the NFL, that I could potentially have success there. And while still while still covering the NBA, but let me transition to the insider role with the NFL because I, I had relationships there. 
And so actually over the last year was the first time over the last decade that I really decided I'm going to go all in on football and use this, use this as a litmus test to see if I can do it. I got to imagine it's a little bit weird because you spend a career building up your sources, getting to a point where you are nationally recognized in basketball. And then you kind of have to start. Now, I'm not going to say you had to start from scratch, but you had to rebuild that. And it's probably been a while since you build something. Yeah. Is that always seeking the next challenge? I know that that's what drives so many journalists. Was it how hard did you have to convince yourself to be like, look, I'm going to do this. I know it's going to take a lot of work, but the benefits are there at the end of the rainbow. It was really hard to say to myself, I'm just going to focus on one because I had put so many resources, to your point, Kyle, into basketball. For so long, I was like, I'm going to do NBA and I'm going to have the NFL be like a, a side hustle. And what happened was early on in free agency, let's go back to even before like February, early, early, late February, early March, getting into free agency. I was talking to a couple agents who I'm friendly with and they were like, what are you doing? You can't you can't do both. Uh, in terms of being an insider in both like at the very least you have to focus on one and have the other one be like you know this is what I do in the offseason but if you're going to break stories and you're going to be an insider voice on a national level you have to really choose one that's the only way to have sustained success and also when I talked to executives they would tell me like it's confusing for for us it's confusing for our audience to figure out what you actually are so if you can really choose one that'll actually create the ultimate success for you. So I decided with that in mind, even though it was a tough decision, that given my contacts in the NFL, that I, I needed to do this, at the very least just for me, to see if I could do it. And to actually create more of a precision for my fans or my audience to actually see me as this. So it was a difficult decision, but I knew that if I had had success with it, that it would be the right one. And I, I had to believe, Kyle, that I could do it. And that's ultimately where I landed. You were announced by the score in early September. So we're very new here. First yeah. of all, how's it going? And second of all, why there? Yeah, it's going great. It was, it was like, you know, over the course of the summer, I had made the decision that I needed to find a new home, you know, because I had I had done the big networks. I had done Yahoo. I had done ESPN for three years and I had always loved the score and loved the app. And so when we started talking, I decided that, OK, this is a real place like I could see myself here long term. But ultimately, um, I needed to make sure that they they understood who I was. And, and it was very clear early on that they did. And what I mean by that is. I, I want to be one of the leading multimedia journalists in the country. I want to cover the NFL as an insider. I want to go on camera. I want to write. I want to be on social media. And I want to be on all these platforms. But also, I need a company and uh, a system that's going to help build around me and, and maximize my strengths. And I had to come to the realization, too, like, okay, here are my weaknesses. I'm not, like, creative or smart enough to – do this on my own and without an infrastructure. So I need that. And when as soon as soon as I started having these conversations with them, they made it abundantly clear. The score did that. We want to build around you. We think that you, we we would fit really well together. And ultimately, if you give us a, if you give us the opportunity, and have a take a leap of faith, then then we'll we'll present the up the other side of it. So that's what I did, and it's been it's been a really exciting time for me, Kyle. But also 
I haven't had this level of um, support around me, you know, like for giving you an example, the other night I was going to interview Kay York, the Browns kicker, because he had the game winning kick and he had this great debut and he's a good friend of mine. So I said, Hey, Kay, you want to come on the show? Sure. No problem. When we set it up and it's programmed in my mind to just do that on my own and then have to cut the stuff up, then have to transcribe it and do everything by myself. Cause that's how I got to this point really. And so I'm on a call with the score we were talking about other stuff and it randomly comes up. I don't even remember how, but I said, Hey, I got this interview tonight. And they were like, well, why don't you do it on our platform and let us cut it up and we'll transcribe it and we'll help you create this streamlined process so that your, your time, once you're done can just be to the next one, opposed to having to spend four or five hours on this. And that was, that was like a, a big eye opener for me because I, I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind, Kyle, that that's what I needed to do. But then, but then it, it happened and it was great. Must be nice. That's all I can say there. As so was nice. I got to say, happening. it was very nice. If nothing else, you know, this is a really big, fresh start to put your stamp on kind of like what this role can be for the score if they add other insiders to mm-hmm. the roster. Sure, sure. And, and that's, I wouldn't be surprised if they did. And also, like, when we, when we started having these discussions, um, it was great for me to learn that, okay, we have a stable writers, stable writers on the NFL and the NBA and college sports. And if you don't have the time or you don't have the the uh, the energy to do this, then we can help you get this done. So that I don't know that I, that hasn't played out yet. But just to know that there's a support there for me is really valuable. Um, you know, I go back to free agency when I was fortunate enough to break, you know, a fair amount of stories. And, you know, I was on the phone like no lie dude like 21 hours a day you know it was it was it's it was a lot and i was getting two three hours of sleep a night it was it was kind of brutal it was exciting but it was brutal and i was at that point essentially on my own as as almost an independent reporter and so i didn't have anyone else there to say you know here's here's the here's how we can get this done and help you move on to the next story like almost like we did with kate york and so now seeing that firsthand is really exciting for me honestly Infrastructure is great. Infrastructure helps out. Um, can't field all your hours of being on the phone and being on 24-7, seven days a week. The life of an insider. Okay, hold on. I just got something that I, I got to put out. This is this is, this is is good timing. All right. We're, we're, this okay. Good audio. Jason Pierre-Paul is visiting the Ravens. Can I, can I call someone really quick and hit you right back? Let's go right there. Let's transition to that. So you get some information that something's happening and you need to check in with a source, but you need to do it quickly. You need to drop whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. What's that lifestyle like? It, and she asked my wife. Um, and like, Put her on. She, I think she's in a meeting. Yeah, asked my wife and my two young kids. Um, it's, you know, I think, what's it like? It's, it's certainly exciting there are a lot of times where you think you're gonna get something though and maybe you don't get that one or it doesn't come and as a result you end up 
being on your phone or by your phone for no reason. And those are the tough ones because it's hard to, it's hard to always be present, you know, with family, for example, when you're expecting something that might not come for three days. And that's, that's when it's tough, but overall it's really, it's really exciting. And it's everything I always wanted to do. You know, I always wanted to be in this position. Um, So for me, it's, it feels, it feels right. When did you start to believe that you could ever be in this position? Because for a lot of people, we want to, you know, we have dreams. Um, you know, a lot of people, 99.9% of people kind of have to abandon them along the way. When's the moment where you felt like, you know what, this is something where I really think I can get where I want to get. I always ask players, when did you know you're going to be a pro? I, I'm fascinated by that. Some guys say big game in college, high school, when they're in peewee, Pop Warner. For me, I learned how to read from reading and I should say devouring the New York Times sports section as a kid. That's like how I actually learned how to read. There's a picture of me when I'm like five, six years old um, in my pajamas on like a Sunday morning, you know, just, you know, with the New York Times sports, you know, and that's, that's how I, that was my first taste of sports. And then obviously playing as well and becoming obsessed with it. So I would like to say when I was a kid, as soon as I realized I wasn't going to play in the NBA, which was a little bit later than most because I had pretty irrational beliefs, but nonetheless, that's when I decided like, okay, this is the only thing I want to do. And so I'd say probably like early college, you know, freshman, sophomore year of college was when it really hit me. And that's when I started to do the internships and really pursue it. You're in somewhat of a unique situation too, because you were a high level athlete and a lot of people who are in sports media are decidedly not uh, high blood pressure, sedentary (laughs) lifestyle. Now I play, I still play hardball i still play baseball so i you know I'm, i need to pat myself on the right back. field second base yeah, uh pitcher pitcher, pitcher. uh crafty okay. ready uh really tough 12 to 6 but I, how has that athlete mentality helped you i think for me it's been everything i really do because i grew up so immersed in sports and competition and and teamwork and i realized not only for myself, but also being around really high-level athletes, you know, more more so than myself, better athletes. The the amount of effort and grind that it takes, and it, man, it really like instilled in me. The, the, you need to treat athletes really well because if you're going to cover them, you need to have the respect for them. Like without them, there's no me, there's no job. So I, I really felt like I remember early on as a kid too. You know, seeing how the Seattle sports like Mariners, Seahawks, Sonics, Huskies, just I always felt like the local writers were really tough, oftentimes unwarranted on on the athletes. And it really bothered me because I felt like it's not fair. And this is these are I always wanted to be like, this is a human being, not just like, you don't. oftentimes as fans, I think it's really easy to just see the helmet and you don't associate what's under the helmet. So I wanted to become an insider through the lens of the athlete to advance the stories, provide more depth and show what's under the helmet. Or if it's a basketball player, like what is this person going through? Like, for example, when, when CJ McCollum was one of my best friends, we did a podcast for two years together when he was traded to the Pelicans from the Blazers earlier this season, we had been talking those few days and I had a good chance it was going to happen when it happened though. I remember all these, uh, Blazers fans were, were really upset. Like we're, we're losing CJ. We didn't get enough back. And I was thinking to myself, well, he just had a baby a month ago and now he's got to move across the country by himself. 
like that, that was where my head went, you know, and, and it obviously worked out well for him, but these are the types of things that I think about, you know, way more than just the stats. Well, I think I was going to ask you about common misconceptions people have about first to market reporting. And I think that a lot of people believe that these scoops grow on trees and are delivered by a scoop fairy or are done like in these cold medical settings where there's no emotion. But can you speak to how much of the job is actually just being someone that people want to spend time with, see as like a fellow human being? Because in my limited capacity doing this on the media sense, I seem to do better when I'm just not interested in it and I'm being myself and I form some sort of connection with someone who can stand my presence for a half hour, that might pay more dividends down the road than, you know what I mean? Than kind of being this mercenary who's just like working the phones, demanding information. Yeah. I always think about like John Clayton, the late great John Clayton, you know, cooped up in his, you know, with they had that great commercial where he was cooped up in his mom's, you know, basement and he's, getting the scoops and i was talking to john skipper who you know used to run espn and he said every week or every month i get these insane phone bills and it would be all the area codes from across the country you know pittsburgh miami tampa uh la all these different area codes and it was clayton just working the phones and this is obviously before cell phones like you know 90s where those phone bills were absolutely ridiculous and i thought i think about that where it's like what's the balance you know of of being um, being on the phone and trying to get information, but also having the, the consciousness, Kyle, that this there's like six other people that, or maybe more that this agent or GM or coach or player can give this story to why, why, why should you give it to me? What makes me special? And the difference is the way you ultimately build these sources is word of mouth. And the reason the word of mouth that is, that, that actually happens is how am I developing a friendship, a relationship that's genuine and not transactional? So the, my, my rule of thumb is if I, if I just met you, I'm not going to ask you for a story for six months. That's the bare minimum. And I, I, that's from Mike Tannenbaum, who's a really good friend, used to be the GM of the Dolphins and Jets. He said, you know, it used to really bother me when reporters, if I knew them a month or six weeks, would, would start asking me for stuff. So I just made the rule of six months is the bare minimum that I'm not going to ask you for something until I can actually develop that relationship. So during the year, 95% of these conversations are not based on football. It's, it's really everything else. How, you know, how's your son? How's your wife? How's your mom? How's the business? It's everything else. And then football comes when it's convenient for, for both people, when it feels right. Um, and that can be with a player too. Like, you know, maybe a player is not doing well and he's, he's been injured or he's missed four tackles in a loss. And it's like, I'm going to, I want to Sunday night after the game, I'm going to call you or I'm going to text you. I'm going to say, how you doing? Because I know that you, you're not happy with yourself. And, and th this needs to be a friendship, you know, it can't just be like in two weeks, Hey, are you going to play Sunday night? Cause I heard you have a, you have a body you have a hamstring problem. So I think for me, it's about um, understanding the athlete or the GM as a, as a person going from there, it's not transactional. And also to your point earlier, just, don't be intimidated by these people just because they they have this high stature. You know, these are again, these are human beings. And if you can find common ground as 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 friends or as being friendly, then you're going to have ultimately a lot more success and you're ultimately both going to benefit from it. All right, let's do this. Uh, we'll start positive. I want to ask about 
a big success you had when you were learning on the fly? And then after that, I want to ask about uh, the biggest mistake you made when you were learning on the fly. You know what stands out is breaking Gronk's retirement. That was that one really not just because of the stature of the story, but because I had put in so much work over the course of two years to get to that point. You know, I had met Rob and we we hit it off and I, I really liked him. I thought he was a great guy. And we hung out a couple of times and we stayed very friendly and always checked in on him, you know, win or lose. And when it came down to his retirement, um, he had I had asked him several months prior, six months, maybe, hey, when when the time comes, can you would it be possible for me to get the story? And uh, he had said, yeah, but I, I didn't know, especially with all that time elapsed, I didn't know and I didn't want to bother him about whether or not I was going to get it. And so I, I started to. I left it alone a little bit. And then I got a call randomly. Hey, Jordan, it's Rob. I'm retiring in 30 minutes. You can announce it in 20. That, that, that's how it happened. Like we hadn't talked for a couple of weeks and I, I almost, I didn't forget about it, but I, I kind of felt like it's not going to happen, you know, because the timing was, it was so late. And I said, first of all, I was like, I, I, I look at my phone. Is this, is this, is he really calling me right before this? And then I said, um, are you sure? And yeah, because I was I actually thought he was gonna come back. So are you sure you're retiring? This this is yes, this is it. I'm gonna pursue other things. And um, and then and then what hit me was wait, 20 minutes after we got off the phone, I, I thought that's just too long. This is gonna get out. Some somebody's gonna get it. So then I texted, I think I texted him, like, is there any way we can move up that timeline five, 10 minutes? And at first he was like, I don't know. And and then all of a sudden he just said, Fuck it, just put it out. I don't care. You you, you know, like you you've been good to me this is your story. I told you. And he fucking came through, man. He came through and it meant everything to me because every, it was the only story that day. And it was massive Gronk retiring. And I was able to say, Rob tells me, and then he retweeted it. And it just validated all of those, all of that hard work over those two years with him, where we had developed that friendship first. You know what I think that's indicative too of is yes, all the hard work and how it didn't happen by accident, but ultimately lots of times in this job, you're at the mercy of other people and whether they, how they're feeling that day, or even if like he could have forgotten that he promised to you. But the fact that with all this going on in his life, he was able to like reach out and try to do it the right way. And remember that he had made a, a, a handshake deal or whatever, or a promise as good as you can expect someone to keep it because you can't, you know, like there's no guarantees in this. It's without that other person agreeing to like work with you on it. You have nothing. Right. Exactly. Right. You're at the mercy of someone else. And what if they're having a bad day and they, they just forget. And then all that is, you know, it's not for nothing, but what you anticipated the story you anticipated getting, you don't get. And I'm sure Kyle, you've experienced, not only in sports, but in life, as everyone has that someone says they're going to do something and they don't. And, you know, it's, it sucks, but it really validated it. And also it, when you start to have some success, I think like anything else, but in this business, for sure, you want more success because it feels good to win. It's like winning a game. You know, it's like, I won that game. I I had a good game and that's what you want to, you crave more of that. Let me alter my second question so it's less personal uh, and you don't have to relive a nightmare. What are some mistakes that people who want to do this make when they're starting out? Well, certainly it applies to me too. Obviously, I've made 
I've made plenty of mistakes. Um, there's a, there's a couple things I would say. One is it's really, uh, it's hard to be in the mindset of I'm not going to be the smartest person, but it's super important to remind yourself and to almost, I would say encourage, don't be the smartest person in the room. Like I, I don't, I want to be around smarter people and it might not be in the room physically, but in the vicinity of you. And what I mean by that is like, your ego can get in the way not saying yours Kyle like us as humans your ego can get in the way and as a result we start thinking about uh why didn't I get this or uh I deserve this and if you can take a step back or a couple steps back you start to realize that this there's always another story and if you continue to do things the right way and you operate under the assumption that everyone else probably deserves to win as well then I think you can have more success and be probably be more, con, you know, more content or happier. So that's, that would be one thing. Another thing is going back to the, the, the transactional relationship or lack thereof. I, I've had, I always try to talk to young, young reporters and uh, kids in school or a couple of years out who are trying to do the same thing and try to help them. And, and one of the things they always say is, you know, why am I not getting scoops? And, you know, why, why won't he give me this? And the, it's, it, if, if you're in that mindset of I deserve this and I need these scoops and all like that's never going to work. You might get one or two, but it's not going to sustain itself. It's just it's not going to happen the way that you want and you probably deserve. So for me, it's about going back to that, you know, being genuine and, and trying to have it be a two way street is, is enormously important. The point about ego is yeah. really good because as I'm doing this, there's a lot of things that I want to say. But people want to listen to you. I have a limited amount of time with you. What you're going to say is going to be more interesting than what I have to say. And I have infinite time to throw my own thoughts in. So it is like you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Let the other people take the center stage because your success is kind of built upon what they're doing anyway. So it makes all the sense in the world. I'm not going to let you get out of here before I get an honest scouting report about your college basketball career. Oh God, it's so bad. By the way, I mean, let me just double down. That, that's a great thing you just said. And it happens to me all the time in interviews because it's like, I would love to add the depth to this, but nobody gives a shit about, about. So let let the interviewee talk. And honestly, you, you didn't interrupt me once and you let me fucking go forever. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, my college career was, was disappointing for a couple of reasons. One is, my high school career was, was really good. And we went down state for the first time in school history. And it was a really rewarding experience in college. I wanted to play as high a level as possible. And I started at Seattle U, which is now in the whack. And I was seven, eight minutes from home. And I got there and I registered it because I wasn't good enough. Second year, I, I, I really, I got really messed up my foot and barely played at all. So now I'm two years without playing. And then I transferred to a division three school. And, you know, I thought I would dominate and I didn't. And it was disappointing for me in, in many ways. I think my the scouting report is really a one trick pony. I was always going to be the best shooter in the gym. I was always going to be the worst defender in the gym. And I couldn't do if I wasn't making shots, especially threes, Kyle. And there's really no reason for me to be on the floor. So, you know, and I would I had I had anxiety with, with games. I haven't talked about this a lot, but like I get nervous for no reason. And. You, you missed a couple of shots in a row and then you're looking at the bench and when am I going to come out? And it just screwed me up. So I know I had big games because, you know, as a shooter, you're going to get hot, but I never had sustained success. And that's how I would define it. 
You know, that backdrop, though, I'm sure has come in handy in terms of when you're speaking to NBA players. And I'm sure that they've shared with you times that they lack confidence. Like you can be the best in the world at something. And yes, you know, we like to say that people are built different or they have that dog in them. But, you know, when you're three of 14 and the crowd's getting on you and you're just having a bad day outside of there, like it's tough to really understand that unless you've played the sport. So I think, you know, on the bright side, some of those trials and tribulations that you had probably help you connect with people on a human level a lot more and, and see what they're going through. Spoken like an athlete, Kyle. See, so you, you've had days where you where you got hit, you got hit up and they, they kicked you out of the second inning and you got three outs. That stuff happens, man. And it, it really does in, impact you, but ultimately it gives you that ability to look at, you know, as, as, as look at athletes as human beings and realize that they, they could, something could have happened at home that could be affecting them and, and nobody else knows. And these are the conversations I love having off camera. And, you know, when I'm not recording just to understand where someone's coming from. And it's not always, as you've seen, I always try to get fans to, to understand, like, you know, I know it's disappointing when your favorite quarterback throws three picks in a game, but there could be a lot of other factors there. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's important work. It's probably falling on deaf ears more often than yeah. it should. Certain people are unreachable, but I do think that we've, we've gotten a little bit better when it, when it comes to that, that's Jordan Schultz, NFL insider at the score, mediocre college basketball career best. Uh, at, at best. Uh, I really appreciate the time, man. Kyle, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's do a media minute here. I wanted to get some thoughts together on the Amazon broadcast of Kansas City Chiefs, Los Angeles Chargers last Thursday. It's been a week. I've slept on it many times. I didn't want to come out here and give a hot take, an unfair take the day after. But a week later, as we still wait for ratings, still waiting for those ratings, will we ever get them? Time will tell. Perhaps by the time you're listening to this, they've come out and they're dynamite, and they're good, and they signal that this new world of broadcasting is here to take all the eyeballs and all the money as we move to two corporations owning everything in the world. That's what will probably happen. I'll be honest with you, though. I don't love it. I didn't love it. Between buffering issues, audio mismatch, quiet crowd noise, and just the genuine frustration that comes with being unable to turn the channel during commercial breaks. It was a worse experience than I normally have watching football. So it's been a bit confounding and confusing to me to see a lot of the sports media cheerleading this new age. At my core, I just don't get it. Why are we championing something that makes it harder for people to enjoy the games? Now, to be fair, the Dude Perfect broadcast was excellent, as I predicted. My son really liked it. The graphic packages were awesome. It was, by all accounts, perfectly fine. But is that really what Amazon is going for? Is that why they went out and got Al Michaels? Is that why they got Kirk Herbstreet? who I thought struggled a bit and whose performance on Saturday shows some real warning signs about being overworked. Where is the bar for Amazon? 
they have a $1.3 trillion market cap. The pass fail of this cannot be that they put on a three-hour broadcast with some hiccups and then didn't release figures for a week about how many people watched that broadcast. Other networks that operate on a smaller budget have been able to do this. They do it every week. Fundamentally, I don't like watching sports on streaming, as is my right. I love seeing what else is on when action stops. I love the seamless flipping. I will admit I am not skilled at operating my remote control on streaming services during live events. Why? Because I so rarely do it. Because I still pay for cable. And I pay for cable for the convenience of being able to watch sports in the same way that I've watched sports since I was a little kid. Am I a Luddite? Maybe. But you cannot tell me that flipping over between streaming services is an improvement. You cannot tell me that being held hostage as Amazon attempts record product integration is fun. Worse, my job requires me to monitor Twitter while games are happening. Everybody watching is on a different timeline. The most pivotal point of the game, the pick six by the Chiefs, was ruined because I discovered people were 20 seconds ahead of me. We watch sports because we don't know what's going to happen next. It's purely unscripted. To have the climax of the marquee event teased, ruined, and spoiled before it happens is not a good experience. Amazon will get better. There's no doubt about that. I don't want to be unfair in judging the rookie effort, the debut, the first foray. Some of the issues will be resolved. And it hardly seems fair to me to come on every week and talk about the things that I don't like because they are so entwined with what this is that they're never going away. But for one week, I'm going to do it. Jump boldly into the future if you must. But ask yourself, does this movement really need cheerleaders from the proletariat? Does it really need your voice supporting it? I wonder. And I don't think that I'm alone. Because I think that I'm fairly tech savvy. I think that I'm fairly progressive. But the median NFL fan sitting somewhere in Kansas could not have been on their couch marveling and reveling in the excitement of this new avenue to watch games. No, if I had to guess, they'll go kicking and screaming. Or worse, they won't go at all. Time will tell. And now we are contractually obligated to give you NFL picks against the spread. Looking back at week two, we ended up going six and 10, which is not good, which will lose you money. But I don't think I've ever suffered more historic bad beats in my life than we did from 315 to 415. That's right. We were on the Browns. That's right. We were on the Ravens. That's right. We were on the Rams. 
all of it, all of it went terribly wrong. Like I remember in Slack, Liam, I said, Hey, we're, we're looking really good. I think we might go six and oh, we went six and 10. That moves our record to 14 and 18. I think if anything, it was just a reminder to either not gamble or certainly don't risk what you can't afford to lose because I took it really hard knowing that there was no financial implications on the line. I can't imagine if you had bet your rent money, how you would even be feeling on Monday. Uh, what a terrible disaster it was, but I don't really even feel bad about it because it felt like we were, here's that word again, on the right side for many of these. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I also feel we we're on the right side of history and anybody who watched Sunday's lineup of games knows that around 3.15, all games seemed to be pretty settled. And like Kyle said, we were feeling real, real good. And then the next 30 minutes happened, bunch of comebacks, bunch of teams that should have had no business winning football games, won their football games. And you know what? It happens. I think my 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 take on this is that normally there are one or two of those games every week, but we got them all out of the way in week two. So week three, things should regress back to the mean. It'll be a little bit more normal. And I think we're primed for a bounce back week. It's a marathon, not a sprint. We got to erase this four game deficit. We can get there. Let's talk about the six picks that we like the best this week. For me, I'm going to start us off by doing the impossible and trusting Nathaniel Hackett. Now, I have to say things have not gone well. He looks like he's in over his head. The Russell Wilson marriage looks bad. Russell Wilson is not going to speak out, but clearly the Broncos have a problem, as evidenced by their fans chanting down the play clock on Sunday as if they were in a college basketball section trying to elicit a shot clock violation. They're favorites this week, and they're favorites over the Niners. One point. Everybody is on the Niners. I looked at public money this morning and the public loves the 49ers and they should because they have a great defense. Jimmy G is coming back. There's that sense of stability with Trey Lance out for the season right now. But I think that the Broncos for all their problems still have a good defense. And I'm not convinced that the 49ers are going to be able to score points in bunches. Jimmy G, we read over and over in the offseason and during training camp that he wasn't even really practicing with the team. So I think that there's legitimate belief out there that he's going to step in rusty. The Broncos still have playmakers. They are at home. I think that this one is one where you grit your teeth, but you feel pretty good if the Broncos get a lead because I just can't imagine the Niners going out there and getting to 24 points. I like this one, like a 17 to 12, an ugly slog. When in doubt, you take the home team. And for all of the limitations we know Jimmy G has, he's also coming off a shoulder surgery this offseason, which nobody really cared about because we didn't think he was going to be playing, but now he is playing. And suddenly you have to take rust into account. And then there's the whole aspect of he didn't even have a playbook during training camp, apparently. Uh, he wasn't in any of the team meetings. They were really doing all they could to set up Lance to succeed. And from the outside, it appeared to be at the cost of bringing Jimmy G along Overall, I think it's just home cooking with a one-point line. It's essentially a pick em game. And the Broncos have had their problems. The Niners have a great defense. But 
I don't know. I don't feel like it took a while last year for the Niners to round into shape and learn or relearn, I suppose, how to win games with Jimmy G under center with a lot of grind them out, low scoring victories and playing against smart defenses. Kyle Shanahan's tricks don't work as well as they usually do. I like the Broncos. I think that Nathaniel Hackett has been fairly criticized to say the least for all of his issues but at a certain point the guy's going to figure it out and I don't think he will completely this week but I think that the first two weeks were a baptism by fire the likes of which few other coaches can claim they've had and my belief is that it you know he'll fix a couple of those mistakes and there will be momentum gained in Denver now on my end one game I have my eye on is the Steelers as five point underdogs against the Browns on Thursday night football this week Uh, The ratings are going to be bad for that one for Amazon because this game is going to be ugly as sin. It is not going to be fun. But frankly, I don't think the Browns are good enough to justify a five-point line, even if they are at home. Mitch Trubisky and the rest of the Steelers' offense did not look good against the Patriots' defense that isn't exactly dominant this year last week. But the Browns blew a 13-point lead after the two-minute warning against the New York Jets, who were starting Joe Flacco on Sunday not only is that a complete collapse defensively the likes of which we rarely see in the NFL it's also the kind of demoralizing victory that lingers like a bad hangover if you're playing on a short week so all of that combined I don't see the Browns I mean the Browns again they're still starting Jacoby Brissett they're probably not going to give Nick Chubb a bunch of carries because he scored three touchdowns and had like 18 touches or something against uh, New York. They need him for the long run. They know they need him for the long run. And the Steelers, they don't have TJ Watt anymore, but they still have uh, Hayward in the center. Their defensive line overall is pretty stingy. I don't foresee a future in which the Browns beat the Steelers by more than a touchdown. And in fact, I'm fairly confident that the Browns don't win this game at all. Well, we'll never know what the ratings are for Amazon because that's proprietary info, and it's only to be trickled out in uh, congratulatory emails. Uh, you, we're not going to release the numbers. Uh, it, you know, it's only a one point three trillion dollar market cap. You can't expect them to both broadcast a game decently, only with some hiccups, only with some people not being able to watch it and having a terrible experience, and release the numbers. That's unheard of. What network in the history of mankind has ever done that? I liked what I saw from the Steelers against the Patriots. And honestly, that's weird to say in a loss. But when I watched this team combined with week one, I think that that defense is really good, even without TJ Watt. The proof is in the pudding. Two weeks, two great performances. This is Thursday night. It's a quick turnaround. What do we know about Thursday night? Offenses really struggle. That's good news for the Steelers because they were going to struggle anyway. I mean, you know, that's a that's a real global brain take. But I'm not sure there's any difference because the Steelers are trying to win football games by scoring 17 points and hoping they can hold their opponent under 17. And it's interesting you picked the Steelers to win 17 to 13. I really like that. The Browns, everything was looking up for them once Nick Chubb found that end zone. And it's kind of funny that he's getting pilloried and roasted for not going down when essentially you have a 13 point lead with less than two minutes left in the game. You're going to win that game. Like that's not a huge strategic tactical error. That's just a meltdown adding to 
the pain was Kevin Stefanski's kids were on the sidelines. They brought him down like kind of in this victory lap, like the vibes were good. They were going to be two and oh, they absolutely needed that game. This division is going to be a rock fight all year long. I mean, I think the Ravens are probably the class, but their defense looks really down. Trubisky is kind of the king of getting 170 yards, running for another 45. If he doesn't turn the ball over, like you can see him getting in field goal range three times. You can see him getting in the end zone once you throw a two-point conversion in there. There's that magical 17-point figure. We talked about the trials and tribulations of trusting Jacoby Brissett and giving away points with Jacoby Brissett. I think that the mood will be dour. I think that, like you said, this is a hangover that really lingers with people. And I think that it'll be a muted experience out there on Thursday night where the atmosphere is always a bit weird. I think the Steelers run the football. I think this game kind of evaporates into the night and is done in like two hours and 25 minutes because it's going to be ground game heavy. It is the classic noon Big 10 game on ESPN2 with Beth Moens on the call. This is an Iowa-Michigan State classic. And I will tell you, what you do in that game is you take the points because five points is absolutely precious. And I kind of still think, I still think out of these two teams, if I had to pick one to make the playoffs, it would be Pittsburgh. The second game that I love, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but Sunday was all types of weird I'm taking the Cardinals and four free points against the Rams. And there was a time where I would have expected this line to be like 13 and a half, 14. And then Kyler Murray happened. He is the most electric athletic player in the NFL. He consistently finds a way to get things done, even with Cliff Kingsbury standing in his way. He's Jekyll, he's Hyde but he's so explosive out there. And I think the more that Arizona can play Sandlot brand football, the better situation they will find themselves in. The Rams have had a bit of a Super Bowl hangover themselves. And the problem that we all kind of circled for them has manifested in two weeks in a row. I don't think they can put games away. I am confident that they can jump out to big leads. I am not confident that they can move the chains with the ground game let the clock tick away and preserve it when they have a big advantage. I really foresee a situation where they're up 10 points. The Cardinals offense goes into that scramble mode. Kyler is so special. They're able to get a late touchdown and I'm just not sold on the Rams yet. I think that they're a good team and the Cardinals are such a wild card out there. They are the Charlie Day and always sunny of the NFL right now. But I loved what I saw from Kyler and I think it's replicable. I really do because there's no script for it. It's run around like a crazy person. He's got all these people chasing him. Like I know that Aaron Donald is on the other side, but it doesn't really matter the caliber of the pass rusher that's coming at him when he can run 90 yards and then make a play either with his legs or his arm. I think and I'm going to regret saying this, I think they tapped into something. I think it was a real season saver what happened on Sunday in Las Vegas. And I trust them to give the Rams a game. And if not win, I want those four points. Yeah, I think this is uh, these two teams are going to be kings of the backdoor cover all season long for much different reasons. The Cardinals, like you said, they have Kyler, they have Cliff. Cliff is not 
so far, Cliff's early game calling has been bad. The Cardinals found themselves in deficits quickly for the first two weeks. They were unable to overcome it against Kansas City, but they definitely overcame it against the Raiders. The Rams, meanwhile, as you so accurately noted, have an explosive passing attack, but they can't really do anything on the ground. And I think another factor that might go unappreciated is that this defense is really good when they're giving all their effort. But these guys just went through a Super Bowl run. They know how important it is to save it for the back half. I think that if they were playing up to their full potential for the entirety of Sunday's game, then Marcus Mariota, of all people, wouldn't have dragged the Falcons back. But they weren't. They took a couple plays off because, you know, a couple series off because, you know, what's what's the worst that could happen? And then the worst did happen. And I don't think they're going to learn their lesson, even though I think that they definitely figured out Kyler in the wild card round last year. So my thoughts on this game is that the Cardinals are going to go down multiple scores early again, third week in a row. The Rams will be rolling. Everybody will feel good. And then a couple late touchdowns get us into the points range. I don't foresee a universe in which the Cardinals win this game. But I do foresee, a, like you said, late touchdown, late touchdown in the field goal that gets us within our four-point cover. And I think that's how it's going to be all season for these Cardinals and for these Rams. Yeah, the Rams seem like the ultimate team where you take the money line and you stay like hell away from giving away any type of points. Yes, exactly. As, long, as much as we love Matthew Stafford around these parts, uh, he is prone to the back-breaking interception, and then that combined with all the other factors here. Rams are going to be good, but dominant. They're not quite the Bills. Uh, another game that I'm looking at real closely involves what appears to be one of the worst teams in the NFL in the early weeks, the Indianapolis Colts. They are six-and-a-half-point underdogs against the Chiefs. And you got to take the Chiefs on this one because the Colts are unbelievably bad. And it's not all Matt Ryan's fault. Matt Ryan has not exactly had a fantastic start to the year. New system for the first time in a while. New uniform for the first time in his career and all that jazz. But the Colts just have nobody to catch the ball. They had Michael Pittman Jr. who was out last week. He'll, he might be back this week, but he's banged up. Their presumed number two receiver going into the season, Alec Pierce, concussion. That leaves who? man i mean who who is catching the ball and they end up their defense which this is the biggest bigger shock is that the defense hasn't been very good they gave up a bunch of points to the jaguars last week and the jaguars are better than they were under urban meyer which is not you know a big accomplishment but it's true nonetheless but still this was one of the league's stingiest defenses last year and they can't really stop anybody most concerningly for this matchup with the Chiefs, the Colts have gotten zero pressure over the first two games of the year. I don't know if it's because their defensive line is struggling or if it's the scheme, lack of blitzes, whatever. But if you're going to let Patrick Mahomes, of all people, sit back there comfortably for five, six seconds every time he drops back, then it's lights out already. I think the Colts are going to be better than they've indicated so far. I don't think that turnaround will start this week. I think the Chiefs are a lock to win by at least one touchdown, even if the Colts do, in fact, remember they have Jonathan Taylor, who has been bizarrely quiet for the opening weeks of the year. Yeah, that's the weirdest part to me. I mean, I, I just don't understand how you can score zero points when you have Jonathan Taylor. Like, he's a classic make-the-whole-plane-out-of-the-black-box type of player. What other option do we have than take the Chiefs here? Like, I, it just doesn't, you know, the... Colts have played the Texans and the Jaguars and they've looked like the worst team in that horrible division. Meanwhile, you have the chiefs 
kind of came back to earth, but still won the game against the Chargers. Mahomes showed that even when he's having a pedestrian game, he's capable of these unbelievable throws at any time. It's impossible to imagine they're going to play a game where they score less than 24, 28 points. And in what world do we think the Colts are possibly getting there? Like the evidence is just not there. And I think that the vibes really play into this because the Colts are famous for finding a way to work their way into being a pretty good team. They're going to go on a five game winning streak at some point this year. I think it's going to be too late, but this line is four or five points too low for my liking. I would really balk at taking the Colts at 11.5 here and six and a half just seems like so few it it, like Mahomes is only going to get more comfortable with his offensive weapons uh we are like sidestep the fact that he's trying to figure out what to do without Tyreek Hill because he looked so good in week one and week two was a bit more of a mortal performance, but also you could make the argument that they just captured one of the biggest wins of the season, a game they absolutely had to have in a huge marquee spot where a lot of things went wrong for them. They were able to do it. And that's not even to mention that their defense, they're much maligned secondary. They give up a lot of yards, but they're capable of making a big play when it matters as evidenced by that pick six, which sealed the game. The Colts are going to be dead after this one, and we have to at least bring it up saying that they were going to make the AFC championship game is going to be an all-time old takes exposed. I want that one back. I'm not so sure that they're going to win six games this year at this point. Well, we did preface that Colts take with the fact that it was wildly irresponsible. So, you know, we covered our bases there. But no, I completely agree. And the thing with that game against the Chargers is that I would say the primary reason that Mahomes didn't have, you know, his typical incredible performance was because the Chargers had Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack on the edges. Those are two very impressive names. The Colts have DeForest Buckner, and that's about it. I'm pretty sure Shaquille Leonard is a good player, but he's not going to help with the pressure. I just do not foresee a universe in which the Colts can touch the Chiefs right now. These are just two teams on wildly different trajectories, and six and a half, as you said, seems super duper low. You know, no fun to take the Chiefs as the favorite, but that's not what you, you don't come here for fun. You come here for good bets and that's a good bet. You don't come here for fun. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put that as a tagline for the podcast. What a sell. Uh, I'm going to get you over to our uh, PR department. I wonder why they haven't trotted that one out yet. Uh, my number one pick of the week, uh, I'm probably going to steal this from you because I know that you love this team as well, but I would be remiss if I did not continue to take the Lions. All the Lions do is cover. They might win some football games this year too. They are running the ball so well. Their offensive line looks awesome and that's with the injury to Frank Ragnow. So if he ever comes back, like I can see a situation where they just run the ball down people's throats and actually compete in that division, getting a little ahead of ourselves. But let's talk about the Vikings, another team that I made a bad call on in last week's podcast, calling them the cream of the crop in the NFC. They did not look like that last night against the Eagles, but they played pretty well after the first quarter. I have to say their comeback fell just short, but they do have weapons. I understand that. Kirk Cousins kills the Lions. There's going to be a lot of points in this one, but there's a difference with this Lions team and seven points is a lot to give out. I know it's on the road, 
I know that it can be a house of horrors. I know that the name on the front of the jersey says that they're the Lions, but there's a toughness to this team and there's a competition to this team that hasn't been seen, I would say, in 15 years. And more than that, it feels like the tide is turning in terms of confidence. Like there's this classic saying here, same old Lions, and it's rang true for six decades. I think we're seeing maybe not an emergence from the same old Lions era, but a total overhaul of infrastructure. And it starts at the top with Dan Campbell, who knows what it is to be coach of the Lions, which is the number one thing that they needed to have. He's embracing the challenge. I love his energy. I think that Kirk Cousins is going to be playing on a short week with some bad memories in his hand. He's prone to turning over the ball. I think if the Lions can force a few turnovers here, they could be in competition in the fourth quarter. And then you give me seven points. Say what you want about the Lions, but they've been able to score points. Jared Goff has looked really good. Amon St. Brown is setting records at wide receiver. And DeAndre Swift uh, could emerge as the leading rusher in the NFL when it's all said and done. And these are things that wasn't entirely expecting coming into the season. But that Eagles loss sure looks a lot better after what the Eagles did to the Vikings last night. You, We are precariously close to sitting here talking about a 2-0 Lions team that are the surprise of the NFL. And for all those reasons and some emerging homerism and just the fact that I don't know what the Lions are when we pick them over the last two years, they're probably like 11 and six. All they do is keep things close and keep rewarding us with correct picks. So I see no reason to change that. I will be doing that each and every single week until it starts trending in the other direction. You said it. I mean, I sent him a stat before we did this podcast into our Slack chat that DeAndre Swift is averaging 6.2 yards before contact per rush, which is which is banana lands. That's insane. I mean, we knew the Lions off the Lions offensive line was going to be good. That there's good and then there's this. And this again, as you said, is without their starting center, without their starting right guard. I'm pretty sure their left guard got hurt too. I mean, these guys, they're, you know, they got some momentum right now. And lest we forget, they're also going to be bringing back Jameson Williams at some point to add to the Lions hive. But I mean, seven points, these Vikings, they don't, I mean, they, they, they trick us in week one a little bit. I think, I don't think they're as bad as the 24 to seven score against the Eagles indicated. I think they're probably somewhere in the middle. But they don't have a huge margin for error, I think, is the thing with these Vikings. Kirk Cousins, those the, the goal line pick to D- Darius Slay was backbreaking. That's brutal. You can't come back from that. And Darius Slay had another interception that really killed the, another Vikings drive. So I think that seven points is a little generous for this Vikings team. I think that the Lions have a chance to win. I'm not as bullish on their chances to you know, be the second best team in the NFC North. I think there's a possibility, but uh, I'm not super bullish on that. But I think seven points, I mean, these lines, like you said, they have shown themselves to be pretty resilient. That Eagles game was a great example of that. And then they turned around and it looked like it was going to be same old lines against the commanders after they scored to make it after Washington scored to make it a one score game in the fourth quarter, you know, classic lions up big inexplicably lose a game. They have no business losing, but that didn't happen. Deandre Swift scored a late touchdown to seal the game. 
I mean, it's hard not to like the Lions, and I think that the Vikings are going to be a risky bet all year. I don't, you know, you always have a pro- have problems knowing what Kirk Cousins, what version of Kirk Cousins is going to show up on Sunday, Monday, or Thursday. I think this year is an even more extreme version of that, and I think that Lions plus seven is a tremendous bet for this week. And one last thought on the Lions is their inability to run the football over the last two decades has been historic and insane and and downright sad. And the reason why I think things are different is that totally changes everything that you want to do. We know that Jared Goff is at his best when he's running play action. This really opens up that for him. Like these two quarterbacks, yes, Kirk Cousins puts up a lot better numbers and is more decorated in terms of pro bowls and stuff like that. But I think that they play a very similar style and in past years, it's been cousins who's been running that play action and finding wide open receivers. And now I think that the lions actually have the advantage there in terms of taking the top off the defense, because I would imagine the Vikings are probably going to have to play a lot of like seven and eight men boxes against this rushing attack, because that does travel on the road. Absolutely. And I think that Justin Jefferson is going to spring open a couple of times because if there's any real weak spot on this Lions team, it is that secondary. It is not very good. And but I mean, you know, you take those. You're just going to accept that that's going to happen. And if you can score on this Vikings defense that which is definitely doable, their week one performance against the Packers might have been the biggest illusion in the NFL after they really couldn't. The fact that the Eagles only had 24 points, despite the Vikings giving up 486 total yards, is pretty remarkable in of itself. 163 of those yards came on the ground. The Lions are going to eat. Play action is going to work. Really, it's just on the defense to not lose Jefferson too many times. And as is usually the case with divisional matchups, I think it's going to be a little bit of a dogfight. My number one pick for the week going against my hometown team. I have the Ravens as three-point favorites over the Patriots in the Patriots home opener, and I do not think that line is anywhere big enough. The Ravens did suffer an unbelievable defeat against the Dolphins. I'm still reeling. I'm sure the Ravens' defense sure as hell is right now. It was inexplicable. I mean, for all of the what I feel to be legitimate concerns about Tua Tungabailoa, I mean, they gave, they were down by three, t- four touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and they lost. They lost in regulation on top of it all. It wasn't even overtime. Uh, so I think that that is not super indicative of what the Ravens are going to be this year. I think that their first half of that game, where they were dominant offensively and pretty stingy defensively, is closer to what these uh, Ravens are going to be. In terms of this week... Bill Belichick defenses have never, ever done well against mobile quarterbacks. Every time they play Lamar Jackson, every time they play Cam Newton, these guys kill the Patriots defense. I don't know what it is, but they always, always do. So there's going to be a lot of points scored by Baltimore this week. I feel very strongly about that. The Patriots have not shown themselves capable of scoring a lot of points so far. I think that things are still coming together there, and maybe things won't be as bad as they looked in training camp and in week one against the Dolphins. But beating the Steelers by a field goal is not indicative of a good team, which is what this line seems to indicate. The Ravens are the best team in the AFC North. They might be one of the best teams in the AFC by the time it's all said and done. The Patriots are average. 
if things go right, they'll be above average. But I doubt Nelson Aguilar is going to have another 100-yard day featuring a 50-yard touchdown where he mossed a defender. I think the run game will, you know, they they showed a lot of progress in the run game, but that's not going to keep up with Lamar Jackson. And Mac Jones had maybe his worst day as a pro uh, last week in terms of just mind-boggling throws. He had a handful of truly bizarre decisions one of which ended in an interception, another of which should have ended in an interception and instead led to a touchdown. And very similar to what I was talking about with the Vikings, the Patriots have very, very little margin for error, and the Ravens have a ton because they have a former MVP, magician, dual-threat quarterback. I do not see a universe in which the Patriots manage to keep this close because that would require an utterly dominant defensive effort And while Bill Belichick is great at drawing up game plans and he has a lot of competent defenders under his belt this year, they are not the kind of 2019, you know, let opposing offenses averaging 11 points a game sort of defense. They are a good defense. They are not a great defense. And that's not going to be enough to limit Lamar Jackson. Not only would it take a great defensive performance, it would take significant steps from the offense. I'm not taking a team that's averaging 12 points a game to cover three points against the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson. It's as simple as that. I think we're looking at the opposite in terms of how teams respond to the crushing comeback victories. I think that the Ravens, in a way, this is the worst thing that could have happened for the Patriots uh, because I think that's going to improve their focus. You look at the coach, John Harbaugh, we all agree he's one of the best in the game. I think that he will have them focused. Lamar Jackson, we're not talking about him because Tua threw six touchdowns, but had he not done that and authored that unbelievable come-from-behind victory, we would be sitting here saying, Lamar Jackson, pay him, what a performance, because he was near perfect, and it's not like the offense did anything wrong. They scored 38 points. Like uh, They were on point. There's no way in the world the Patriots get above 21, and I just don't think that there's a way they keep the Ravens below 21. It's as simple as that. Now, I will say there is the caveat. The Patriots, we will see if they still kind of have that magic. They do get up for big games. They are able to band together as a team, and that's all well and good, but at a certain point, just the object talent disparity has to rear its head. And it's not just on offense. It's all over on the field. You look at all the top 100 players that the Ravens have. You look at the steadiness on the lines and you look at what you can trust going into the game. I am not impressed by Mac Jones at all. Part of that is because he doesn't have weapons. But again, you know, that's an excuse. That doesn't mean anything when the final score is all tallied and the bets and the bet slips are examined so those are our picks uh i can't wait for the games to start because it just sitting in in a bad week is is awful i feel shame uh we can make a lot of excuses it felt like the universe came together just to humble us so maybe we learn an important lesson going forward iron sharpens iron uh you know pride cometh before the fall all those coach speak little mantras you want to throw in there i think that liam we are on the same page and let's get rowing in the right direction for the rest of the year i'm looking forward to it i've like i said i feel great about the pendulum swinging back our way this week and i think we're going to be coming back with at least a 500 record for week four ohio ready for some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime 
Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.